Chapter Three of Isaac Walton's Lives of John Donne, Henry Wotton, Richard Hooker, and George Herbert by Isaac Walton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three, Richard Hooker, Part Three. Thus did the joy and gratitude of this good man's heart break forth, and it is observable that as the invitation to this slander was his meek behaviour and dove-like simplicity for which he was remarkable so his christian charity ought to be imitated for though the spirit of revenge is so pleasing to mankind that it is never conquered but by a supernatural grace revenge being indeed so deeply rooted in human nature that to prevent the excesses of it for men would not know moderation almighty god allows not any degree of it to any man but says vengeance is mine and though this be said positively by god himself yet this revenge is so pleasing that man is hardly persuaded to submit the manage of it to the time and justice and wisdom of his creator but would hasten to be his own executioner of it and yet nevertheless if any man ever did wholly decline and leave this pleasing passion to the time and measure of god alone it was this richard hooker of whom i write for when his slanderers were to suffer he laboured to procure their pardon and when that was denied him his reply was that however he would fast and pray that god would give them repentance and patience to undergo their punishment and his prayers were so far returned into his own bosom that the first was granted if we may believe a penitent behaviour and an open confession and tis observable that after this time he would often say to dr saravia oh with what quietness did i enjoy my soul after i was free from the fears of my slander and how much more after a conflict and victory over my desires of revenge about the year sixteen hundred and of his age forty-six he fell into a long and sharp sickness occasioned by a cold taken in his passage by water betwixt london and gravesend from the malignity of which he was never recovered for after that time till his death he was not free from thoughtful days and restless nights but a submission to his will that makes the sick man's bed easy by giving rest to his soul made his very languishment comfortable and yet all this time he was solicitous in his study and said often to dr saravia who saw him daily and was the chief comfort of his life that he did not beg a long life of god for any other reason but to live to finish his three remaining books of polity and then lord let thy servant depart in peace which was his usual expression and god heard his prayers though he denied the church the benefit of them as completed by himself and tis thought he hastened his own death by hastening to give life to his books but this is certain that the nearer he was to his death the more he grew in humility in holy thoughts and resolutions about a month before his death 
This good man, that never knew, or at least never considered, the pleasures of the palate, became first to lose his appetite, and then to have an averseness to all food, insomuch that he seemed to live some intermitted weeks by the smell of meat only, and yet still studied and writ. And now his guardian angels seemed to foretell him that the day of his dissolution drew near, for which his vigorous soul appeared to thirst. In this time of his sickness, and not many days before his death, his house was robbed, of which, he having notice, his question was, Are my books and written papers safe? And being answered that they were, his reply was, Then it matters not, for no other loss can trouble me. About one day before his death, Dr. Saravia, who knew the very secrets of his soul, for they were supposed to be confessors to each other, came to him, and after a conference of the benefit, the necessity, and safety of the church's absolution, it was resolved the doctor should give him both that and the sacrament the day following. To which end the doctor came, and after a short retirement and privacy, they too returned to the company. And then the doctor gave him, and some of those friends which were with him, the blessed sacrament of the body and blood of our Jesus, which being performed, the doctor thought he saw a reverent gaiety and joy in his face. But it lasted not long, for his bodily infirmities did return suddenly, and became more visible, insomuch that the doctor apprehended death ready to seize him yet after some amendment left him at night with a promise to return early the day following which he did and then found him better in appearance deep in contemplation and not inclinable to discourse which gave the doctor occasion to require his present thoughts to which he replied that he was meditating the number and nature of angels and their blessed obedience and order without which peace could not be in heaven, and, oh, that it might be so on earth. After which words he said, I have lived to see this world as made up of perturbations, and I have been long preparing to leave it, and gathering comfort for the dreadful hour of making my account with God, which I now apprehend to be near. And though I have by his grace loved him in my youth, and feared him in mine age, and labored to have a conscience void of offence to him, and to all men, yet if thou, O Lord, be extreme to mark what I have done amiss, who can abide it? And therefore where I have failed, Lord, show mercy to me, for I plead not my righteousness, but the forgiveness of my unrighteousness, for his merits, who died to purchase pardon for penitent sinners. And, since I owe thee a death, Lord, let it not be terrible, and then take thine own time. I submit to it. Let not mine, O Lord, but let thy will be done. With which expression he fell into a dangerous slumber, dangerous as to his recovery, yet recover he did, but it was to speak only these few words, Good doctor, God hath heard my daily petitions, for I am at peace with all men, 
and he is at peace with me, and from that blessed assurance I feel that inward joy which this world can neither give nor take from me. My conscience beareth me this witness, and this witness makes the thoughts of death joyful. I could wish to live to do the church more service, but cannot hope it, for my days are past as a shadow that returns not. More he would have spoken, but his spirits failed him, and after a short conflict betwixt nature and death, a quiet sigh put a period to his last breath, and so he fell asleep. And now he seems to rest like Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. Let me here draw his curtain, till with the most glorious company of the patriarchs and apostles, the most noble army of martyrs and confessors, this most learned, most humble, holy man shall also awake to receive an eternal tranquillity, and with it a greater degree of glory than common Christians shall be made partakers of. In the meantime, bless, O Lord, Lord, bless his brethren, the clergy of this nation, with effectual endeavors to attain, if not to his great learning, yet to his remarkable meekness, his godly simplicity, and his Christian moderation, for these will bring peace at the last. And, Lord, let his most excellent writings be blessed with what he designed when he undertook them, which was, Glory to thee, O God, on high, peace in thy church, and good will to mankind. Amen. Amen. Isaac Walton This following epitaph was long since presented to the world, in memory of Mr. Hooker, by Sir William Cooper, who also built him a fair monument in Bourne Church, and acknowledges him to have been his spiritual father though nothing can be spoke worthy his fame or the remembrance of that precious name judicious hooker though this cost be spent on him that hath a lasting monument in his own books yet ought we to express if not his worth yet our respectfulness church ceremonies he maintained then why without all ceremony should he die was it because his life and death should be both equal patterns of humility or that perhaps this only glorious one was above all to ask why had he none yet he that lay so long obscurely low doth now preferred to greater honours go ambitious men learn hence to be more wise humility is the true way to rise and god in me this lesson did inspire to bid this humble man friend sit up higher appendix and now having by a long and laborious search satisfied myself and i hope my reader by imparting to him the true relation of mr hooker's life i am desirous also to acquaint him with some observations that relate to it and which could not properly fall to be spoken till after his death, of which my reader may expect a brief and true account in the following appendix. And first, it is not to be doubted, but that he died in the forty-seventh, 
if not in the forty sixth year of his age which i mention because many have believed him to be more aged but i have so examined it as to be confident i mistake not and for the year of his death mr camden who in his annals of queen elizabeth fifteen ninety nine mentions him with a high commendation of his life and learning declares him to die in the year fifteen ninety nine and yet in that inscription of his monument set up at the charge of sir william cooper in bourne church where mr hooker was buried his death is there said to be in anno sixteen o three but doubtless both are mistaken for i have it attested under the hand of william sumner the archbishop's registrar for the province of canterbury that richard hooker's will bears date october twenty sixth in anno sixteen hundred and that it was proved the third of december following and that at his death he left four daughters alice cicely jane and margaret that he gave to each of them a hundred pounds that he left joan his wife his sole executrix and that by his inventory his estate a great part of it being in books came to one thousand ninety two pounds nine shillings two pence which was much more than he thought himself worth and which was not got by his care much less by the good housewifery of his wife but saved by his trusty servant thomas lane that was wiser than his master in getting money for him and more frugal than his mistress in keeping of it of which will of mr hooker's i shall say no more but that his dear friend thomas the father of george cramner of whom i have spoken and shall have occasion to say more was one of the witnesses to it one of his elder daughters was married to one challoner sometime a schoolmaster in chichester and are both dead long since margaret his youngest daughter was married unto ezekiel chark bachelor in divinity and rector of st nicholas in harbleton near canterbury who died about sixteen years past and had a son ezekiel now living and in sacred orders being at this time rector of waldron in sussex she left also a daughter with both whom i have spoken not many months past and find her to be a widow in a condition that wants not but very far from abounding and these two attested unto me that richard hooker their grandfather had a sister by name elizabeth harvey that lived to the age of a hundred and twenty-one years and died in the month of september sixteen sixty three for his other two daughters i can learn little certainty but have heard they both died before they were marriageable and for his wife she was so unlike jephthah's daughter that she stayed not a comely time to bewail her widowhood nor lived long enough to repent her second marriage for which doubtless she would have found cause if there had been but four months betwixt mr hooker's and her death but she is dead and let her other infirmities be buried with her thus much briefly for his age the year of his death his estate his wife and his children i am next to speak of his books concerning which i shall have a necessity of being longer 
or shall neither do right to myself or my reader, which is chiefly intended in this appendix. I have declared in his life that he proposed eight books, and that his first four were printed anno 1594, and his fifth book first printed and alone anno 1597, and that he lived to finish the remaining three of the proposed eight. But whether we have the last three as finished by himself is a just and material question, concerning which I do declare that I have been told almost forty years past by one that very well knew Mr. Hooker and the affairs of his family, that, about a month after the death of Mr. Hooker, Bishop Whitgift, then Archbishop of Canterbury, sent one of his chaplains to inquire of Mrs. Hooker for the three remaining books of polity writ by her husband, of which she would not, or could not, give any account, and that about three months after that time the bishop procured her to be sent for to London, and then by his procurement she was to be examined by some of Her Majesty's counsel concerning the disposal of those books. But by way of preparation for the next day's examination, the bishop invited her to Lambeth, and after some friendly questions she confessed to him that one Mr. Chark and another minister that dwelt near Canterbury came to her and desired that they might go into her husband's study and look upon some of his writings, and that there they too burnt and tore many of them, assuring her that they were writings not fit to be seen, and that she knew nothing more concerning them. Her lodging was then in King Street in Westminster, where she was found next morning dead in her bed, and her new husband suspected and questioned for it, but he was declared innocent of her death. And I declare also that Dr. John Spencer, mentioned in the life of Mr. Hooker, who was of Mr. Hooker's college and of his time there, and betwixt whom there was so friendly a friendship that they continually advised together in all their studies, and particularly in what concerned these books of polity, this Dr. Spencer, the three perfect books being lost, had delivered into his hands, I think by Bishop Whitgift, the imperfect books, or first rough drafts of them, to be made as perfect as they might be by him, who both knew Mr. Hooker's handwriting, and was best acquainted with his intentions. And a fair testimony of this may appear by an epistle, first and usually printed before Mr. Hooker's five books, but omitted, I know not why, in the last impression of the eight printed together in anno 1662, in which the publishers seemed to impose the three doubtful books to be the undoubted books of Mr. Hooker, with these two letters, J, S, at the end of the said epistle, which was meant for this John Spencer, in which epistle the reader may find these words which may give some authority to what I have here written of his last three books. And though Mr. Hooker hastened his own death by hastening to give life to his books, yet he held out with his eyes to behold these Benjamins, these sons of his right hand, 
though to him they proved Benones, sons of pain and sorrow. But some evil-disposed minds, whether of malice or of covetousness, or wicked blind zeal, it is uncertain, as soon as they were born and their father dead, smothered them, and by conveying the perfect copies, left unto us nothing but the old imperfect mangled drafts, dismembered into pieces. No favor, no grace, not the shadow of themselves remaining in them. Had the father lived to behold them thus defaced, he might rightly have named them Benonines, the sons of sorrow. But being the learned will not suffer them to die and be buried, it is intended the world shall see them as they are. The learned will find in them some shadows and resemblances of their father's face. God grant that as they were with their brethren dedicated to the church for messengers of peace, so in the strength of that little breath of life that remaineth in them, they may prosper in their work, and by satisfying the doubts of such as are willing to learn, they may help to give an end to the calamities of these our civil wars. J. S. And next the reader may note that this epistle of Dr. Spencer's was writ and first printed within four years after the death of Mr. Hooker, in which time all diligent search had been made for the perfect copies, and then granted not recoverable, and therefore endeavored to be completed out of Mr. Hooker's rough drafts, as is expressed by the said Dr. Spencer in the said epistle, since whose death it is now fifty years. And I do profess by the faith of a Christian that Dr. Spencer's wife, who was my aunt and sister to George Cramner, of whom I have spoken, told me forty years since, in these or in words to this purpose, that her husband had made up or finished Mr. Hooker's last three books, and that upon her husband's deathbed, or in his last sickness, he gave them into her hand, with a charge that they should not be seen by any man, but be by her delivered into the hands of the then Archbishop of Canterbury, which was Dr. Abbott, or unto Dr. King, then Bishop of London, and that she did as he enjoined her. I do conceive that from Dr. Spencer's and no other copy there have been diverse transcripts, and I know that these are to be found in several places, as namely in Sir Thomas Bodley's library, in that of Dr. Andrews, late Bishop of Winton, in the late Lord Conway's, in the Archbishop of Canterbury's, and in the Bishop of Armagh's, and in many others and most of these pretended to be the author's own hand, but much disagreeing, being indeed altered and diminished, as men have thought fittest to make Mr. Hooker's judgment suit with their fancies, or give authority to their corrupt designs. And for proof of a part of this, take these following testimonies. Dr. Barnard, sometime chaplain to Dr. Usher, late Lord Archbishop of Armagh, hath declared in a late book called Clavi Trabales, printed by Richard Hodgsonson, anno sixteen sixty one, that in his search and examination of the said bishop's manuscripts he found the three written books which were supposed the sixth, seventh, and eighth 
of Mr. Hooker's Books of Ecclesiastical Polity, and that in the said three books, now printed as Mr. Hooker's, there are so many omissions that they amount to many paragraphs, and which cause many incoherencies. The omissions are by him set down at large in the said printed book, to which I refer the reader for the whole, but think fit in this place to insert this following short part of some of the said omissions. First, as there could be in natural bodies no motion of anything, unless there were some first which moved all things, and continued unmovable, even so in politic societies there must be some unpunishable, or else no man shall suffer punishment. For Sith punishments proceed always from superiors, to whom the administration of justice belongeth, which administration must have necessarily a fountain, that deriveth it to all others, and receiveth not from any, because otherwise the course of justice should go infinitely in a circle, every superior having his superior without end, which cannot be. Therefore a well-spring, it followeth, there is, a supreme head of justice, whereunto all are subject, but itself in subjection to none. Which kind of pre-eminency, if some ought to have in a kingdom, who but a king shall have it? Kings, therefore, or no man, can have lawful power to judge. If private men offend, there is the magistrate over them, which judgeth. If magistrates, they have their prince. If princes, there is heaven, a tribunal before which they shall appear. On earth they are not accountable to any. Here, says the doctor, it breaks off abruptly. And I have these words also attested under the hand of Mr. Fabian Phillips, a man of note for his useful books. I will make oath, if I shall be required, that Dr. Sanderson, the late Bishop of Lincoln, did a little before his death affirm to me he had seen a manuscript affirmed to him to be the handwriting of Mr. Richard Hooker, in which there was no mention made of the king or supreme governors being accountable to the people. This I will make oath, that that good man attested to me. Fabian Phillips so that there appears to be both omissions and additions in the said last three printed books, and this would probably be one reason why Dr. Sanderson, the said learned bishop, whose writings are so highly and justly valued, gave a strict charge near the time of his death, or in his last will, that nothing of his that was not already printed should be printed after his death. It is well known how high a value our learned King James put upon the books writ by Mr. Hooker, and known also that our late King Charles, the martyr for the church, valued them the second of all books, testified by his commending them to the reading of his son Charles, that now is our gracious king, and you may suppose that this Charles I was not a stranger to the three pretended books because in a discourse with the Lord Say, in the time of the Long Parliament, when the said Lord required the King to grant the truth of his argument, because it was the judgment of Mr. Hooker, 
Quoting him in one of the three written books, the king replied, they were not allowed to be Mr. Hooker's books, but, however, he would allow them to be Mr. Hooker's and consent to what his lordship proposed to prove out of those doubtful books, if he would but consent to the judgment of Mr. Hooker in the other five that were the undoubted books of Mr. Hooker. In this relation concerning these three doubtful books of Mr. Hooker's, my purpose was to inquire, then set down, what I observed and know, which I have done, not as an engaged person, but indifferently, and now leave my reader to give sentence, for their legitimation as to himself, but so as to leave others the same liberty of believing or disbelieving them to be Mr. Hooker's, and tis observable that as Mr. Hooker advised with Dr. Spencer, in the design and manage of these books, so also, and chiefly with his dear pupil, George Cramner, whose sister was the wife of Dr. Spencer, of which this following letter may be a testimony, and doth also give authority to some things mentioned both in this appendix and in the life of Mr. Hooker, and is therefore added. I. W. GEORGE CRAMNER'S LETTER UNTO MR. RICHARD HOOKER FEBRUARY, 1598 What posterity is likely to judge of these matters, concerning church discipline, we may the better conjecture if we call to mind what our own age, within few years, upon better experience, hath already judged concerning the same. It may be remembered that at first the greatest part of the learned in the land were either eagerly affected or favourably inclined that way. The books then written for the most part savoured of the disciplinary style, it sounded everywhere in pulpits and in common phrase of men's speech. The contrary part began to fear they had taken a wrong course, many which impugned the discipline, yet so impugned it not as not being the better form of government, but as not being so convenient for our state, in regard of dangerous innovations thereby likely to grow. One man, John Whitgift, the archbishop alone, there was to speak of, whom let no suspicion of flattery deprive of his deserved commendation, who in the defiance of the one part and courage of the other, stood in the gap and gave others respite to prepare themselves to the defence which by the sudden eagerness and violence of their adversaries had otherwise been prevented, wherein God hath made good unto him his own impress, vincit qui partitur, for what contumelious indignities he hath at their hands sustained the world is witness, and what reward of honour above his adversaries God hath bestowed upon him, themselves, though nothing glad thereof, must needs confess. Now, of late years, the heat of men towards the discipline is greatly decayed, their judgments begin to sway on the other side, the learned have weighed it and found it light. Wise men conceive some fear, lest it prove not only not the best kind of government, but the very bane and destruction of all government. The cause of this change, in men's opinions, may be drawn from the general nature of error, 
disguised and clothed with the name of Truth, which did mightily and violently possess men at first ; but afterwards, the weakness thereof being by time discovered, it lost that reputation which before it had gained. As by the outside of a house the passers by are oftentimes deceived till they see the conveniency of the rooms within, so, by the very name of discipline and reformation, men were drawn at first to cast a fancy towards it ; but now they have not contented themselves only to pass by and behold far off the fore front of this reformed house, they have entered in, even at the special request of the master workmen and chief builders thereof. They have perused the rooms, the lights, the conveniences, and they find them not answerable to that report which was made of them, nor to that opinion which upon report they had conceived. So as now the discipline, which at first triumphed over all, being unmasked, beginneth to droop and hang down her head. This cause of change in opinion concerning the discipline is proper to the learned, or to such as by them have been instructed. Another cause there is, more open and more apparent to the view of all, namely the course of practice, which the reformers have had with us from the beginning. The first degree was only some small difference about the cap and surplice, but not such as either bred division in the church or tended to the ruin of the government established. This was peaceable, the next degree more stirring. Admonitions were directed to the Parliament in peremptory sort against our whole form of regiment. In defence of them, volumes were published in English and in Latin, yet this was no more than writing. Devices were set on foot to erect the practice of the discipline without authority. Yet herein some regard of modesty, some moderation was used. Behold, at length it break forth into open outrage, first in writing by Martin, in whose kind of dealing these things may be observed. 1. That whereas Thomas Cartwright and others his great masters had always before set out the discipline as a queen and as the daughter of God, he, contrariwise, to make her more acceptable to the people, brought her forth as a vice upon the stage. 2. This conceit of his was grounded, as may be supposed, upon this rare policy, that seeing the discipline was by writing refuted, in Parliament rejected, in secret corners hunted out and decried, it was imagined that by open railing, which to the vulgar is commonly most plausible, the state ecclesiastical might have been drawn into such contempt and hatred as the overthrow thereof should have been most grateful to all men, and in a manner desired by all the common people. 3. It may be noted, and this I know myself to be true, how some of them, although they could not for shame approve so lewd an action, yet were content to lay hold on it to the advancement of their cause, by acknowledging therein the secret judgments of God against the bishops, and hoping that some good might be wrought thereby for his church, as indeed there was, though not according to their construction. 
for fourthly, contrary to their expectation, that railing spirit did not only not further, but extremely disgrace and prejudice their cause, when it was once perceived from how low degrees of contradiction at first, to what outrage of contumely and slander they were at length proceeded, and were also likely to proceed further. A further degree of outrage was also in fact. Certain prophets did arise, Hackett and Coppinger, who, deeming it not possible that God should suffer that to be undone which they did so fiercely desire to have done, namely that his holy saints, the favourers and fathers of the discipline, should be enlarged and delivered from persecution and seeing no means of deliverance ordinary, were fain to persuade themselves that God must needs raise some extraordinary means, and being persuaded of none so well as of themselves, they forthwith must needs be the instruments of this great work. Hereupon they framed unto themselves an assured hope, that upon their preaching out of a peas-cart in Cheapside, all the multitude would have presently joined unto them, and in amazement of mind have asked them, Viri frates quid agimus? Whereunto it is likely they would have returned an answer far unlike to that of St. Peter. Such and such are men unworthy to govern, pluck them down. Such and such are the dear children of God, let them be advanced." Of two of these men it is meet to speak with all commiseration, yet so that others by their example may receive instruction, and withal some light may appear, what stirring affections the discipline is like to inspire, if it light upon apt and prepared minds. Now, if any man doubt of what society they were, or if the reformers disclaim them, pretending that by them they were condemned, let these points be considered. 1. Whose associates were they before they entered into this frantic passion? Whose sermons did they frequent? Whom did they admire? 2. Even when they were entering into it, whose advice did they require? And when they were in, whose approbation? Whom advertised they of their purpose? Whose assistance by prayer did they request? But we deal injuriously with them to lay this to their charge, for they reproved and condemned it. How? Did they disclose it to the magistrate, that it might be suppressed? Or were they not rather content to stand aloof off, and see the end of it as being loath to quench that spirit? No doubt these mad practitioners were of their society, with whom before, and in the practice of their madness, they had most affinity. Hereof read Dr. Bancroft's book. A third inducement may be to dislike of the discipline, if we consider not only how far the reformers themselves have proceeded, but what others upon their foundations have built. Here come the Brownists, in the first rank, their lineal descendants, who have seized upon a number of strange opinions, whereof, although their ancestors the Reformers were never actually possessed, yet by right and interest from them derived, the Brownists and Barrowists have taken possession of them, 
for if the positions of the reformers be true, I cannot see how the main and general conclusions of Brownisms should be false. For upon these two points, as I conceive, they stand. 1. That because we have no church, they are to sever themselves from us. 2. That without civil authority, they are to erect a church of their own. And if the former of these be true, the latter, I suppose, will follow. For if above all things men be to regard their salvation, and if out of the church there be no salvation, it followeth that if we have no church, we have no means of salvation. And therefore separation from us in that respect is both lawful and necessary, as also that men, so separated from the false and counterfeit church, are to associate themselves unto some church, not to ours, to the popish much less, therefore to one of their own making. Now the ground of all these inferences being this, that in our church there is no means of salvation, is out of the reformer's principles most clearly to be proved. For wheresoever any matter of faith unto salvation necessary is denied, there can be no means of salvation. But in the Church of England, the discipline, by them accounted a matter of faith and necessary to salvation, is not only denied but impugned, and the professors thereof oppressed. Ergo. Again, but this reason perhaps is weak, every true Church of Christ acknowledgeth the whole gospel of Christ. The discipline, in their opinion, is a part of the gospel and yet by our church resisted. Ergo. Again, the discipline is essentially united to the church, by which term essentially they must mean either an essential part or an essential property. Both which ways it must needs be, that where that essential discipline is not, neither is there any church. If, therefore, between them and the Brownists there should be appointed a solemn disputation, whereof with us they have been oftentimes so earnest challengers, it doth not yet appear what other answer they could possibly frame to these and the like arguments, wherewith they may be pressed, but fairly to deny the conclusion, for all the premises are their own, or rather ingeniously to reverse their own principles before laid, whereon so foul absurdities have been so firmly built. What further proofs you can bring out of their high words, magnifying the discipline, I leave to your better remembrance. But above all points, I am desirous this one should be strongly enforced against them, because it ringeth them most of all, and is of all others, for aught I see, the most unanswerable. You may, notwithstanding, say that you would be heartily glad these their positions might be salved, as the Brownists might not appear to have issued out of their loins. But until that be done, they must give us leave to think that they have cast the seed whereout these tares are grown. Another sort of men there are, which have been content to run on with the reformers for a time, and to make them poor instruments of their own designs. These are a sort of godless politics, who, perceiving the plot of discipline to consist of these two parts, 
the overthrow of episcopal and erection of presbyteral authority and that this latter can take no place till the former be removed are content to join with them in the destructive part of discipline bearing them in hand that in the other also they shall find them as ready but when time shall come it may be they would be as loath to be yoked with that kind of regiment as now they are willing to be released from this these men's ends in all their actions is distraction their pretence and colour reformation those things which under this colour they have affected to their own good are one by maintaining a contrary faction they have kept the clergy always in awe and thereby made them more pliable and willing to buy their peace two by maintaining an opinion of equality among ministers they have made way to their own purposes for devouring cathedral churches and bishops livings three by exclaiming against abuses in the church they have carried their own corrupt dealings in the civil state more covertly for such is the nature of the multitude that they are not able to apprehend many things at once so as being possessed with a dislike or liking of any one thing many other in the meantime may escape them without being perceived four they have sought to disgrace the clergy in entertaining a conceit in men's minds and confirming it by continual practice that men of learning and especially of the clergy which are employed in the chiefest kind of learning are not to be admitted to matters of state contrary to the practice of all well-governed commonwealths and of our own till these late years a third sort of men there are though not descended from the reformers yet in part raised and greatly strengthened by them namely the cursed crew of atheists this also is one of those points which i am desirous you should handle most effectually and strain yourself therein to all points of motion and affection as in that of the brownists to all strength and sinews of reason this is a sort most damnable and yet by the general suspicion of the world at this day most common the causes of it which are in the parties themselves although you handle in the beginning of the fifth book yet here again they may be touched but the occasions of help and furtherance which by the reformers have been yielded unto them are as i conceive two namely senseless preaching and disgracing of the ministry for how should not men dare to impugn that which neither by force of reason nor by authority of persons is maintained but in the parties themselves these two causes i conceive of atheism one more abundance of wit than judgment and of witty than judicious learning whereby they are more inclined to contradict anything than willing to be informed of the truth they are not therefore men of sound learning for the most part but smatterers neither is their kind of dispute so much by force of argument as by scoffing which humour of scoffing and turning matters most serious into merriment is now become so common 
as we are not to marvel what the prophet means by the seed of scorners, nor what the apostles by foretelling of scorners to come, for our own age hath verified their speech unto us, which also may be an argument against these scoffers and atheists themselves, seeing it hath been so many ages ago foretold that such men the latter days of the world should afford, which could not be done by any other spirit, save that whereunto things future and present are alike. And even for the main question of the resurrection, whereat they stick so mightily, was it not plainly foretold that men should in the latter times say, Where is the promise of his coming? Against the creation, the ark, and diverse other points, exceptions are said to be taken, the ground whereof is superfluity of wit, without ground of learning and judgment. A second cause of atheism is sensuality, which maketh men desirous to remove all stops and impediments of their wicked life, among which, because religion is the chiefest, so as neither in this life without shame they can persist therein, nor, if that be true, without torment in the life to come, they therefore whet their wits to annihilate the joys of heaven, wherein they see, if any such be, they can have no part, and likewise the pains of hell, wherefore not that they may not deserve those pains, but that deserving them there may be no such pains to seize upon them. But what conceit can be imagined more base than that man should strive to persuade himself even against the secret instinct, no doubt of his own mind, that his soul is as the soul of a beast, mortal and corruptible with the body? against which barbarous opinion their own atheism is a very strong argument. For were not the soul a nature separable from the body, how could it enter into discourse of things merely spiritual, and nothing at all pertaining to the body? Surely the soul were not able to conceive anything of heaven, no, not so much as to dispute against heaven and against God, if there were not in it somewhat heavenly and derived from God. The last which have received strength and encouragement from the reformers are papists, against whom, although they are most bitter enemies, yet unwittingly they have given them great advantage. For what can any enemy rather desire than the breach and dissension of those which are confederates against him? wherein they are to remember that if our communion with papists in some few ceremonies do so much strengthen them as is pretended how much more doth this division and rent among ourselves especially seeing it is maintained to be not in light matters only but even in matters of faith and salvation which overreaching speech of theirs because it is so open an advantage for the barrowist and the papist, we are to wish and hope for, that they will acknowledge it to have been spoken rather in heat of affection than with soundness of judgment, and that through their exceeding love to that creature of discipline which themselves have bred, nourished and maintained, their mouth in commendation of her did so often overflow. From hence you may proceed, but the means of connection I leave to yourself, 
to another discourse, which I think very meet to be handled either here or elsewhere at large, the parts whereof may be these. 1. That in this cause between them and us men are to sever the proper and essential points and controversy from those which are accidental. The most essential and proper are these two, overthrow of the Episcopal and erection of presbyteral authority. But in these two points, whosoever joineth with them is accounted of their number. Whosoever in all other points agreeeth with them, yet thinketh the authority of bishops not unlawful, and of elders not necessary, may justly be severed from their retinue. Those things, therefore, which either in the persons, or in the laws and orders themselves are faulty, may be complained on, acknowledged, and amended, yet they no whit the nearer their main purpose. For what if all errors by them supposed in our liturgy were amended, even according to their own heart's desire? If non-residents, pluralities, and the like were utterly taken away, are their lay elders therefore presently authorized, or their sovereign ecclesiastical jurisdiction established? But even in their complaining against the outward and accidental matters in church government, they are many ways faulty. 1. In their end, which they propose to themselves, for in declaiming against abuses, their meaning is not to have them redressed, but by disgracing the present state, to make way for their own discipline. As therefore in Venice, if any senator should discourse against the power of their senate as being either too sovereign or too weak in government, with purpose to draw their authority to a moderation, it might well be suffered. But not so, if it should appear he spake with purpose to induce another state by depriving the present. So in all causes belonging either to church or commonwealth, we are to have regard what mind the complaining part doth bear, whether of amendment or innovation, and accordingly either to suffer or suppress it. Their objection, therefore, is frivolous. Why, may not men speak against abuses? Yes, but with desire to cure the part affected, not to destroy the whole. 2. A second fault is in their manner of complaining, not only because it is for the most part in bitter and reproachful terms, but also it is to the common people, who are judges incompetent and insufficient, both to determine anything amiss, and for want of skill and authority to amend it, which also discovereth their intent and purpose to be rather destructive than corrective. 3. Those very exceptions which they take are frivolous and impertinent. Some things, indeed, they accuse as impious, which, if they may appear to be such, God forbid they should be maintained. Against the rest it is only alleged that they are idle ceremonies without use, and that better and more profitable might be devised, wherein they are doubly deceived for neither is it a sufficient plea to say, this must give place, because a better may be devised, because in our judgments of better and worse we oftentimes conceive amiss, 
when we compare those things which are in devise with those which are in practice for the imperfections of the one are hid till by time and trial they be discovered the others are already manifest and open to all but last of all which is a point in my opinion of great regard and which i am desirous to have enlarged they do not see that for the most part when they strike at the state ecclesiastical they secretly wound the civil state for personal faults what can be said against the church which may not also agree to the commonwealth in both statesmen have always been and will be always men sometimes blinded with error most commonly perverted by passions many unworthy have been and are advanced in both many worthy not regarded and as for abuses which they pretend to be in the law themselves when they inveigh against non-residents do they take it a matter lawful or expedient in the civil state for a man to have a great and gainful office in the north himself continually remaining in the south he that hath an office let him attend his office when they condemn plurality of living spiritual to the pit of hell what think they of the infinity of temporal promotions by the great philosopher paul lib two cap nine it is forbidden as a thing most dangerous to commonwealths that by the same man many great offices should be exercised when they deride our ceremonies as vain and frivolous were it hard to apply their exceptions even to those civil ceremonies which at the coronation in parliament and all courts of justice are used were it hard to argue even against circumcision the ordinance of god as being a cruel ceremony against the passover as being ridiculous shod girt a staff in their hand to eat a lamb to conclude you may exhort the clergy or what if you direct your conclusion not to the clergy in general but only to the learned in or of both universities you may exhort them to a due consideration of all things and to a right esteem and valuing of each thing in that degree wherein it ought to stand for it oftentimes falleth out that what men have either devised themselves or greatly delighted in the price and the excellency thereof they do admire above desert the chiefest labour of a christian should be to know of a minister to preach christ crucified in regard whereof not only worldly things but things otherwise precious even the discipline itself is vile and base whereas now by the heat of contention and violence of affection the zeal of men towards the one hath greatly decayed their love to the other hereunto therefore they are to be exhorted to preach christ crucified the mortification of the flesh the renewing of the spirit not those things which in time of strife seem precious but passions being allayed are vain and childish g c end of chapter three part three